Okay, we are beginning in earnest this Sunday a series through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And we're looking at Genesis 1 all the way through to chapter 2, verses 3 this morning. And this text is, I likely don't have to tell you, pretty controversial for modern readers. And for modern readers like us, the controversy surrounds how these texts interface and how they should be understood in relationship to scientific theories of origins, like evolutionary theory. However, what's really interesting to understand and what I want to emphasize this morning is that 3,000 years ago to the first hearers and receivers of this text, this text was also tremendously controversial and shocking, but for completely different reasons. And part of the controversy was due to the fact that the first chapter of Genesis was really without parallel in the ancient world. In a cultural context that had accepted certain ideas about the nature of reality, that had sort of a baseline for how we think about the gods and about material reality and about what it means to be human and what it means to live in the world, Genesis 1 hit readers like a freight train. It was explosively transformative. Now today, as people that are vaguely familiar with the story, Genesis 1 likely isn't experienced as a real gut punch to your worldview, right? You, you tend to not hear Genesis 1 and then kind of stagger back and hold yourself and say, wow, I got to just take a moment to take it all in. But that is the way that it would have been received by those who first heard it. It would cause you to have to do the hard work of saying, this goes against every presupposition that I've built my worldview around. And I need to totally reconsider how this text changes my assumptions about life, about the universe, about myself, about human existence. That's what the revelation from God of Genesis 1 did for ancient hearers. And it can actually do it for us if we hit a pause button on the controversies that swirl around it today and try and enter the text with leaning into um, ancient, an ancient worldview, ancient eyes, ancient ways of seeing it. And when we do that, in a fresh way, it inspires and challenges us because never before had there been such a shocking, controversial, awe-inspiring truth forwarded, and so many truth claims forwarded with such precision and sophistication and in such rapid, rapid succession. This text is unbelievably dense. Without a word of a lie, I could preach on Genesis 1 for 40 weeks and you, you, you'd still be saying, well, yeah, but you still haven't gotten to the implications of this. So we're not going to spend 40 weeks on Genesis 1. We're just going to spend one week, but it's going to be intense and dense. So I'm going to invite Ben up to read the scripture for this morning. And he's going to be reading. You can follow along if you have a Bible. It's not going to be on the screen. So if you don't have something in front of you, just close your eyes. Don't fall asleep. Picture the whole thing unfolding. Powerful, powerful text. Hi, Ben. I'll get you the microphone. Good to go? Oh, perfect. Here, I'll get the setting again. Perfect. 
Good morning, everyone. Genesis is a really good book, so I'm excited about this series for sure. All right, let's get into it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land and gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. And there, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. God said, let there be lights in the, in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vaults of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good God blessed them and said be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw that all that he had made was very good, 
and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. In your bullet outline, I have highlighted a few key verses that would have been experienced by ancient readers as a monumental challenge to the prevailing worldview of the time, way of seeing and understanding who God is, who we are, how we're called to live. And I'm just going to move through those fairly quickly. We'll come back and touch on some of these as we move through Genesis 1 to 11. But I want to at least draw your attention to the most shocking and controversial and awe-inspiring parts of this text that might not strike us as entirely controversial as a modern reader at first pass, but absolutely would have stood out for anybody hearing this for the first time. So right in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is one God. That's a big deal. Probably not a big deal to us. We're like, Jan, I get it. That's not presumed basic common knowledge. That's not a self-evident truth. Every culture of the time understands that there is a huge diversity. uh, There's a pantheon of gods with different rankings like we talked about last week and different spheres of authority. We might haggle over the names of those gods and um, where exactly their authority resides, but no one really questioned whether or not there were many gods who somehow and sometimes cooperated with each other, but oftentimes didn't, and were at war with each other, and that explained the strife that was in life. And yet here we have, in the beginning, one God creating everything. That would have just been a wrench in the gears of an ancient reader. That is very difficult for them to wrap their heads and their heart around. Because what it introduces is a creator-creature distinction. There is the Creator, capital C, and everything else, the heavens and the earth, that's shorthand for all of known reality, everything else is a creature. It's been created, which means anything that's creaturely, the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, the plants, the world, that's not divine. It's not godlike. There is God, then there is everything else. There's the Creator and the creature, and the people in that time who just presumed that entities like the sun and the moon or the um, elements in the world, certain aspects of nature had, were divinely infused, the first verse of Genesis challenges that. No, there is one God who made everything and that what he has made should not be confused with what and who he is. There are no other gods mentioned Verse 2, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Two words I want you to remember leaving today, tohu and bohu. Easy to remember, pretty phonetically simple. Just say tohu and bohu. Those are the words that get translated in verse 2 for formless and empty. King James translates it as confusion and emptiness. So God arrives on the scene. He's 
and, he, and, and Genesis uh, 1, 2 is giving us a picture. This one God takes this earth, which was formless. It was um, confused. The, the picture is sort of like just when you pour out Legos, and they're not kind of defined or put together. It's just a bin of raw material, but it's also void. There's a fundamental emptiness there, and this is a picture that Jewish scholars talk about how it's the very first clue in the Bible that leads us to one of the main conclusions of the Bible, which is we need God in our lives. Because without God in our lives, the natural state of things is tohu and bohu, confusion and emptiness. So God shows up. In verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. That is a radical idea that one God creates, how does he create? He creates by simply speaking something. We think, okay, let there be light, that's pretty famous, whatever. Pop, something comes into existence. Ancient readers, their question is, where's the sex, where's the violence? Every creation story in the ancient world, and probably the most significant one, which is the Babylonian creation story, the Enuma Elish, you can Google it, uh, pretty much phonetically, Enuma Elish, it is the presumed default worldview of the time. And at that time, the worldview is the gods. Well, the reason how the heavens and the earth come about is because of a war between the gods. And some of that war involved sexual violence. But the earth is created because Marduk, which is the chief, who ends up becoming the chief Babylonian god, he slays one of his competitors, Tiamat, and he rips her apart. And in that ripping, the heavens and the earth are created. And so to an ancient non-Israelite, to an ancient pagan, we would say, your creation story is grounded fundamentally in violence, and often sexual violence. And that means that when you encounter violence in the world, like, well, that just is what it is. Reality is violent, right? I mean, if everything came into existence from violence and destruction and war, then we might not like the fact that there's violence, destruction, rape, war, but they're an inevitable consequence because the very fundamental act of creation was violent. But this God does not create through violence. He simply speaks, and his word alone is sufficient to bring things into being that didn't exist before. That's a revolutionary idea. Has no antecedent in the ancient world. And then if you look at the next six days, look and see what's happening. Day one, separation of light and darkness. Day two, separation of sky and sea. Day three, separation of land and sea. What's happening there? God is creating forms, containers for things, through separation. Next three days, sun, moon, stars, fish and birds, animals and humans. What is God doing? He's filling those containers. What's the first container on day one? Light and darkness. Day four gets filled with, it's not called the sun and the moon because uh, God wanted to make it clear that the sun and the moon aren't divine. He just calls it the greater light and the lesser light. And its purpose is to give light to the earth. It's not divine. Nature, again, another reinforcement, nature is not divine. 
separation of the sky and the sea, and those things now get filled with fish and birds, the separation of the land and the sea, and now the land gets filled with animals and ultimately human beings. There's a form and a filling. Why is there a form and a filling? Because when God encounters the earth, it was formless and void. Tohu and bohu. So when God creates, he says, man, these Lego pieces are scattered, but I've got a plan for this. And he begins building a container and then filling it with life. And not just like a little bit of life. Language there is teeming with life. God is a God of opulence. And he wants to fill his world with life and good things. And so we see this original scenario of tohu and bohu, formless, chaotic, confused, not having any direction or purpose, and empty of any purpose and meaning and design, and God fixes both of those problems. He comes in and he says, I am going to form reality and fill it. And that means life has meaning and purpose. And it doesn't mean what the ancients believed, which is, well, yeah, like life maybe has meaning, but the only meaning is suffering. Like that's just the end of the, again, the creation story, it starts in violence. You move through life, it's full of suffering, so I guess that's the point of life. Genesis 1 says, okay, wait, we'll get to that story. You have to understand, before there was suffering, before there was tragedy and catastrophe, God's design has always been to fill his creation with life, teeming with good things, giving purpose and direction. And that means that God takes this chaotic mass of raw potential and begins to order it and to fill it and that means God has a purpose and, and a design for every single thing. And that means life has purpose and life is beautiful and life is good and life is a gift and life comes with a dignified task. We might hear that and be like, I affirm that, I, I agree with that. There is no parallel in the ancient world to that kind of message in terms of the fundamental worldview of reality. So when God reveals the true story of the world and reality, in competition with man-made stories, you see how stark the difference is. It's so much about the power of God in his just, good ordering of creation. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Humanity is special. It has a distinctive place and purpose within God's good design. Every single day, right, God sees that it was good. And yet there is a culmination to this creation story, and it is humanity. Humanity is special because humanity bears the image of God. That doesn't mean that we're divine and we're like um, little gods in the sense that we're, we're deities just shrunk down to miniature size, but we are meant to bear the image. We're, we're, we're meant to reflect who God is, his character and goodness into the world in a way that no other creaturely thing has been asked to do. Nothing else is made in the image of God. Only mankind is. And this verse was deeply unsettling to people from pagan contexts because what it meant was every single human being has fundamental dignity and worth. Every human being. 
we today talk about universal human rights and we might even use language like dignity of every human being. Those are um, often sort of phrases that people in our culture have co-opted from Genesis 1 without understanding it. They just think it's self-evidently true. It's not. It hasn't been for most of human history. What's been self-evidently true for most of human history is there absolutely is a hierarchy of importance and value and dignity to human beings. If at least on the level of power and uh, rulership and authority. So kings, pagan cultures had no problem talking about kings made in the image of God. They reflect God's goodness and power. That's why they're the king because God has installed them there to reflect, or the gods have installed him there. Maybe the powerful, maybe the mighty, maybe the intelligent, maybe the influential, maybe they're made in the image of God, but all humanity, like all of it, the full spectrum, like the unborn, like the elderly, like the intellectually deficient, the socially awkward, the politically disconnected, the diseased, the weak, the low status, the poor, the powerless, humans from any tribe, any ethnicity. That's a stretch that no pagan culture ever made. God's revelation in Genesis just states it as the most clear, universal fact, an established what later becomes the very ground by which, whether they realize it or not, people fight for universal human rights based on the universal dignity of all people. But I'll challenge you, if you are not a believer in the Bible, believer in Scripture, believer in this particular text, I would push you to consider why you think there should be universal human rights if you don't actually believe this text is true. Because your experience of the world will teach you without this text, it would be much more logical to conclude there are gradations of better quality types of human beings. And we should treat these people as advanced, and we should put them on a pedestal, and we should give them preferential treatment. And these people, we don't have to, or maybe even worse, these people are disposable. So Genesis 1, verse 26 to 27 is a bomb in terms of the prevailing worldview of the time. Every society believed in some kind of aristocratic hierarchy that said, well, people at the top were not just more powerful, they were more worthy and dignified in who they were. Ontologically, they mattered more to creation than the people at the bottom, right? Why do you think God chooses the Israelites who were slaves in Egypt because it's a wrench in the gears of the prevailing worldview that if there was a God and God was going to do something powerful in the world, he would obviously use and choose the powerful, strong, brilliant, influential people and or nations. But when God goes to work, he chooses the least, the smallest, the most seemingly insignificant. And by doing so, he reaffirms this truth that everyone is made in the image of God, all life is valuable, 
All life matters to God. Humanity is special. And if we're made in the image of God, let me challenge you with this as an application. One of the applications you can push through in this is that if you are made in the image of God and God fundamentally is a creator who forms and fills um, potential before him, then that is part of what your job is as a human being. What is God's will for my life? That's a big question. I can assure you that it, it is to form your life according to who God is and according to what he says and then fill your life with very many, many good things. Form and fill it. Be creative. Take your chaotic, messy, oh, I, don't, I got a lot of potential here, but it seems to be kind of like hidden potential and God says start to form it. Start to use talent. Start to push yourself. Learn new things. Learn new ways of interacting. Develop that skill set that I've given you. When we do those things, when we grow, when we develop, when we learn, we are bringing form and filling it to places of chaotic potential. And that is a good thing. That's why when we're growing, when we're learning, when we're developing, it feels right. Right? Is there anything more sad than, I was going to say 15-year-old, but maybe it could be 30 or 40-year-old, uh, man who has um, lives in his parents' basement, addicted to video games and pornography, right? That's tohu and bohu. That is formless and void. And God says, that's not what I've made you for. I've made you to begin structuring your life with my help towards something that matters. And even imperfect steps in that direction, God will bless because it's the very, goes to the very spiritual DNA of who we are. You are an image bearer of God. You have dignity, independent of whether or not you feel it, you sense it, you understand it. I'm not asking for your opinion. I'm telling you, you are an image bearer of God. And that means you are meant to bring out your potential at school, at work, and sports, and your marriage, your skill set. Like, that is such an important part of what it means to be human. And you will not feel truly alive until you begin to go on that journey in different areas of your life. Verse 28, God blessed them, the humans, and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We'll I'll talk more about this next week, but know at least today that again, because humanity is special, humanity has a calling beyond mere survival. Humanity is called to be fruitful and to fill and to subdue and to rule. And we'll talk about that next week, but it's not just, just keep, just exist. Do whatever it takes to exist and just passing on your genes to the next generation. It's not just simply about survival. That is one level of analysis that you can look at. We are wired for survival, but we're wired for so much more. And so if you set your sights on a, a worldview that is so flat and so stunted that all you think the point of life is is just survival, just propitiation of the species, you will find yourself increasingly out of step with how you're really meant to understand life and who you're really meant to be. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Not controversial to us, super important for ancient readers. Every ancient reader presumed because the heavens and the earth were the result of some kind of chaotic, violent war amongst the gods or between certain gods, that material reality, like flesh and bone, creaturely existence, however you want to frame it, it was fundamentally like a lower, bad, negative thing. 
Now, maybe if you please the gods, they could rescue you from it at some point in the future, and you could go to be with the gods in heaven. But the starting point was that this world is not good. And again and again, after every day, and then here as a summary statement, God saw all that he had made, not some of it, all of it, the totality of the cosmos, and said, it is very good. It's very good. I've formed it the way that I want. I've filled it the way that I want. It now has a purpose. It's no longer chaotic potential. It's been brought together under my design, and I have a goal in mind for it. The word good does not correlate with our word perfect. We'll talk about that in the next chapter. That's not how we're supposed to read it. When God says all that he had made was good, what he's saying is this, everything that I've made has value, it has purpose, it has design, it has a telos, it has a goal, it has a function. It's now not just swimming out in the abyss. It means something because I have given it a task. All things that God makes are good. Fundamental to a Christian worldview, but not fundamental to any worldview of the time. It was much easier, again, to imagine, well, some things are good, some things are bad. And that got split all the way down to the fundamental distinction between the genders that, well, men are obviously like, I mean, Greeks thought this. Men, uh, Greeks thought that men were fully formed humans and females got stuck in that process. So they're like subhuman. I mean, they were careful about the language, but philosophically what they thought was like men are made in the image of God because men are good. They're fully rational, strong. I mean, in every way that's demonstrable from their perspective, they said men are superior to women. Women are inferior. And then that, got, that dualism got split up into all these different areas where certain activities were good, certain were bad, or they were evil, or they were spiritual or not spiritual. Genesis 1 says, no, the dignity of every single human being, male and female, young and old, rich or poor, different ethnicities, and not just that, but every part of reality is good. So when you experience good things in life, any good thing, a good meal, right? Nelson, burger month, go out, get a burger, you bite into that burger and it's so good. You're like, thank you, Baba's Restaurant. That's the best burger I've had so far. You're like, that is so good. And to acknowledge that goodness is so important as a Christian because you understand that at the bottom of everything is a fundamental goodness. The biblical story does not start with sinfulness and brokenness. The biblical story starts with goodness. It doesn't start like pagan stories that started with violence and warfare and suffering and brokenness and hardship and sinfulness, depending on how they described it. It starts with a fundamental goodness. Material reality is good. That's why, spoiler alert, Revelation, the end chapters, where does everybody go? Not to heaven. New heavens and a new earth. I saw a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Now the dwelling of God is with man. Creation's good. God wants to dwell here. Crazy stuff happens in the middle. We'll get to that. But then at the end, God says, hey, this is my world. I made it. It was very good. I'm not giving it up. This thing's not going to hell in a handbasket. I'm not burning the whole thing up. I'm going to reclaim it, ultimately. And God does. And God will. 
Chapter 2, verse 2, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he was doing. So on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Some people look at that and say, oh, what kind of God do you serve that God would have to be all-powerful, but he has to rest? Oh, checkmate, just just, just prove the Bible. Again, that would be a modern, foolish way of understanding the text. It's a sophisticated way of saying God stops his work and he rests. He builds rest into the very fabric of creation so that slavery can't exist. So that no one can fall under the lie or the illusion that life is just simply about activity and survival. It is a good thing to rest. It's a good thing to look at the things that you've formed and filled and be like, oh, that's good. I love that. I really enjoyed that. That was a challenge, but it was meaningful. It's awesome. Times of reflection and rest and worship and just stepping back from just doing is so important and it's so good. Now watch this, because I, I don't think many people have probably been exposed to this level of analysis of the text. This is a little bit of biblical theology where you use patterns and processes and texts in the Bible to understand the Bible from within itself. And you're like, I don't understand what that means. I know that sounds a little convoluted, but just, just watch this for a second. Seven days, six days of creation with the seventh day added on, seven days. We're probably familiar with the fact that for Jewish people, seven is a number that means or symbolizes what? Perfection or fullness or com- complete. And, that, and that's totally true. And there's that level of analysis that you're like, absolutely. Um, what you may not be aware of is for both Jewish thinkers, but also for pagans, the number seven is also connected to something very, very significant. Does anyone know what it is? Uh, it, no, not quite. No. Number seven is always connected, even in pagan cultures, to temple inaugurations. When temples are constructed, dedicated, and set up. Remember what a temple is. We talked about it last week. A temple to anybody in the ancient world is a place where the, God, the God's space or divine space overlaps and interlocks with human space. It's an interesting bridge whereby the priestly class or with the right rituals, someone can enter into a holy space and come into contact and have communion with the God or gods. And you can serve the gods. And if you serve the gods well enough, they'll reciprocate, right? You serve the God of agriculture, you will get a harvest. This pattern of seven in temple inauguration actually happens through the Old Testament, but we just tend not to have eyes to see it, right? The construction of the tabernacle is completed in seven stages in Exodus 40. The ordination of a priest, Leviticus 8, seven days. That's how long a priest gets ordained for. Solomon's temple constructed in seven years. That temple is dedicated to God during a a seven-day festival on the start of the seventh month. Solomon's dedication speech is given in 1 Kings in seven distinct petitions. Biblical theology looks at patterns in the Bible to allow the Bible to tell us something that we wouldn't normally get if we were not aware of some of those other patterns. You look at Genesis 1 to 2, 3 through not just an ancient worldview, but through a biblical Jewish worldview, an Israelite worldview. And 
as God's story unfolds and as God begins to reveal things, what you realize is there's a complementary, deeper message that we're supposed to understand self-evidently in Genesis 1. And that is, all of reality is God creating a temple to be filled with his glory. All of reality is meant to be a place where the fullness of who God is and the fullness of who humanity is as a reflection of that um, good God is just filled and teeming with life. See, we jump into this text and we get into like, what about the mechanism of creation? Are these literal 24-hour days? Are they um, eons of time? And uh, how do you have a day in the evening before there's sun and moon created? I don't, you know, we're trying to understand it mechanistically. But that's not what stands out to an ancient person. And to an ancient Israelite, they realize when God created the heavens and the earth, he started creating a temple. The, the outer courts, stars, the inner courts, land, the sky and the sea, and the oceans, the inner holy of holies, the land, and what's at the center? Male and female, image bearers. Concentric circles of importance and significance. God is building a temple. Do you, can you begin, can you just try and lean into how revolutionary that would have been for someone who thought the story of known reality begins with violence and death and it's going to end in violence and death and I should expect violence and death. Unless I'm one of those people who tend to be blessed by the gods because of my wealth, fame, power, connections, whatever. Totally, totally different. Totally amazing. Genesis 1, as one writer puts it, isn't about material manufacturing, how God put everything together. It's about establishing the cosmos as his temple and properly ordering things so that life can flourish. There is no ancient document or creation story that can compete with Genesis 1's beauty, coherence, power, promise, glory, its summons, its vision for human life and flourishing. This text is unmatched. Its scope and sequence and sophistication casts doubt to any skeptic who would dismiss it as being little more than the accumulated ramblings of ignorant pre-scientific people. It is a revelation from God that provides the foundation for a coherent and constructive way of understanding the world and a view of understanding the world that cannot be constructed through any other philosophy. But I want you to see one more thing in the passage because I want you to see how this entire chapter is supposed to lead you to Jesus. Do you see it? Don't, don't feel bad if you can't. I couldn't. You might say, well, I can see how this chapter kind of maybe establishes that there's a God. Yeah, I should believe in God. And yeah, God's good and orderly, but I, I, don't, I'm not, I don't see the bridge here to Jesus. I don't, I don't see where that's going. Well, in John's gospel, when John begins the story of Jesus, he actually connects it to the Genesis 1 story. And John says, in the beginning was the Word, who's later revealed to be Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. Colossians 1, 15 to 17. The Son, Jesus, 
is the image of the invisible God. We're image bearers, but as you know in the story, we get to be we're broken image bearers. We don't perfectly reflect God's goodness. We don't perfectly fulfill our calling of what it means to be truly human. But one did, and his name was Jesus. So Colossians proclaims him to be the exact representation of God's glory. He is the image of God. He's the firstborn over all creation. He has supremacy. For in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things, meaning he has a one priority. And in Jesus, all things hold together. That's why Jesus in Revelation 22 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. Reality is not meant to simply be a grand temple that has God with human beings at the center. It is meant to be a temple with the God-man, Jesus, at the center. So if we know the whole story, biblically, we understand that what Genesis 1 is challenging us with is that not just a vague Uh, soft, low-resolution idea of God being at the center of our lives, it's supposed to be Jesus. And it was Jesus then, and reality is meant to center around Jesus. He is the point. He is the goal. That's why again and again in the New Testament, he is called Lord. He is given the name and the status of God because he is fully God and fully man come to show us and reveal what it means to be God in human form. And that's why without Jesus at the center of your world, do not be surprised if your world is full of tohu and bohu. Confusion and emptiness. Formlessness, and there's a void there. You can try and fill it with other things. You can try and form it according to your own strategies. But what Genesis 1 wants to lead us to is the fact that if everything was created through Jesus and in Jesus and is ultimately for Jesus, he's to be the center. Don't expect to enter into completion and rest and fullness and fulfillment while you ignore and sideline Jesus, who is the Lord of the cosmos. The Gospels are stories of Jesus entering the tohu and bohu of people again and again and again in their illness, in their alienation, in their isolation, in their lostness. Jesus is coming and often speaking words and his word alone is sufficient to bring form and filling and life, teeming with life, new potential, new possibility, new hope where there was nothing but a chaotic mess of hopelessness. God took a world that was formless and empty and shrouded in darkness and brought it to a place of completion, fullness, his peaceful shalom and rest. And he can do it for you as well. But only he can do it. Only he can do it. Because only Jesus has been revealed to be the God who steps into chaos and darkness and in a thousand different ways say, let there be light. Let there be light. If you're a believer this morning, my challenge to you is cling to Jesus. Repent from spiritual sluggishness. Turn your places of tohu and bohu over to him. Begin to bring out the potential that is within you. Learn from the great image bearer of God what you are called to be as an image bearer. And to someone this morning who's not a believer, I want you to understand that Jesus is the center that will hold. Not just for your life, 
not just for mentally, emotionally, relationally, spirit, but in its totality. Jesus is the ontological center of life. He is the foundation that can reform your life and fill it with his goodness and light and purpose and hope. So go to him in prayer. Admit that you are in chaos and darkness. Admit that you need his help. Confess him to be the Lord and the only one capable of taking this mess and bringing it to a place of completion and rest. Believe on his name. Commit your life to him. It can be a very simple prayer. Jesus, I need you in my life. Forgive me of all the garbage and sin and tohu and bohu and I realize I am confused and empty and I filled it with so many things and I don't want to fill it with those things anymore. It doesn't bring form and filling. Will you help me? I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I want you to rescue me from darkness and bring me to light. And if you say that prayer, be prepared to find yourself experiencing shock and awe by what Jesus will create in you and through you. Let's pray. Jesus, we acknowledge you as the King, the Center, the Lord, the Alpha, the Omega, the Word that stands as supreme over all of reality. May that truth settle in our hearts in a way that your Holy Spirit just massages for exactly what we need to hear and how we need to be challenged. For those of us who claim your name, may it, um, may, you, may it do work in us that leads to greater obedience and faithfulness and greater excitement to follow you, God. And for those who are far from you, who are holding you at arm's length, may it be the tipping point, may it be the domino that starts the surrender of a life. God, where there is darkness, where there is confusion, where there is emptiness, bring light and formation and filling. For your name's sake, amen.